The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Look at the beginnings of the image of the Buddha. We start with the uh, aniconic reminder of the um, stone carving of the Triratna. And we'll just kind of show you the differences, uh, kind of an array of differences you have. Um, I won't get into the dates and the times. If anybody wants them, I, I do have them up here. But this is Thai, this is Khmer, this is Japanese, this is another Thai, Tibetan. And this is a, will be a surprise. It's a composite. Um, so in the uh, right after the uh, end of the aniconic phase, which would be um, the earliest known image actually of um, the Buddha, would be in the second century uh, A.D. and uh, this is a very early one from an area called Mutra and it's very well known for its red sandstone. If you go into a lot of um, uh, museums and you see the, this very characteristic red sandstone, that's from Mutra. And this particular image of the Buddha uh, evolved and the um, figure on this side of him is sometimes referred to as Brahma. So it's already mixing. Uh, traditions are mixing. And um, here you have um, the lotus. This would have been a, a circular, what they're calling a mandorla, uh, around the head of the Buddha. And it's very distantly related to a halo in the idea that it's the, the merging of both the halo god-king tradition of the Persians and then the halo that comes from uh, the uh, ideas of Christianity. Um, and the, uh, if you notice the top knot on the head, that will evolve uh, into, that's called an Ushnisha. And that is one of the marks of a highly evolved or an enlightened being. Um, sometimes they'll, ha this one did have a painted, but it's not no longer there. It's uh, Urna, the, the mark between the eyes. Uh, and the elongated ears, uh, because of uh, the fact that the Buddha was a prince and wore heavy earrings, and so they stretched, uh, stretched his earlobes. Um, so the style here is derived from the native Indian yogic tradition and the qualities that are intended to be emphasized are is the containment of the breath so that the uh, musculature is all the forms of the body are smooth and the inner tension of the breath is the intention of the artist to, to communicate. Now, if you notice, there are lines on the body which suggest robes. Well, one, another um, one of the prescriptions in uh, the qualities of a highly enlightened being 
is that the body is so radiant that it radiates light right through the cloth. So you will see only kind of a linear indication of a robe suggesting that the light, the inner light of the body is coming through. Um, so this, the mutra image, which this is a, a, a good example of, uh, comes from the native Indian tradition just coming straight through and evolving into the Buddha image. Now, the next type of image, which would be contemporary but from Gandhara, uh, it is uh, influenced by the Greco-Roman tradition and Alexander the Great. And you see, instead of just a simple top knot, you see very articulated uh, hair curly and a mustache and very uh, more portrait-like physical features and here is the the urna in the center of the uh, the eyebrows and this is a standing image so you can see the very uh, much articulated drapery and uh, if you look at some Gandharan images and it's fun to go to the um, San Francisco Museum of Asian Art and see a lot of these images and see the two very, very different styles. And um, the, the styles somewhat merge in the Gupta tradition, which is, I have to say, is one of my favorites because it's just this very um, incredible combination of the two and the qualities of the, for instance, the trans transparent robes but the the um, the linear the the lion like shoulders the the proportionality is taken very very much from that tradition uh, that had been uh, developed over the years of uh, I think it's 30 No, this is, um, but it, it still um, would be interpreted as being a monk's robe. Um, the symmetrical treatment of this robe uh, is very unusual. And this is, as you'll see, is what will go into China. Now, the previous, the mutra image, the, the, sen the sensual quality of the uh, containment of the breath is what goes into Southeast Asia whereas this more articulated and um, the uh, more specific uh, linear qualities is what goes into China the interesting thing here the it also you have the downcast eyes you have the lips in the shape of the bow and the snail curls this is in the Gupta tradition is the first time you see the snail curls. There are two uh, kind of mythological explanations for the snail curls. One is that the Buddha cut off his hair when he left the palace and it just grew back in to that level and never grew anymore. And the other one was that when he was uh, on the night of his enlightenment and there was a huge flood and a makara snake uh, Mukalinda came and curled himself under the Buddha and raised him above the flood waters 
while he was sitting and the snails came up and attached to his head to keep him warm. So I, I like that, um, that mythology much better. As Joseph Campbell said, at least they know it's a mythology. <laughs> oh, 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 stop. Right there. <laughs> and at, as you might recognize this, the, um, the path that the um, image took from India, the Gupta in uh, India through Afghanistan into China, uh, and uh, Bamiyan in Afghanistan, you can see the remnants of the linear robe and the, again, over both shoulders, um, which is a stylistic feature that developed in the Gupta period. Uh, and I'm sure everybody also knows that this no longer exists. It was blown up by the Taliban. Uh, so that when you get to China, and this is in our own San Francisco Museum of uh, Asian Art, uh, and it is actually dated by inscription on the bottom to 338 uh, CE. So um, here is, it's a very interesting image because the Chinese have a preference for symmetry, for symmetrical uh, balance so that they keep the robe over both shoulders. And they also very much like the idea of um, the kind of um, design quality that came from the uh, Gandharan image that comes from the Greco-Roman tradition. Because you don't see a lot of sensuality in the bodies. You don't see this quality of the yoga quality and here because it's still very early you have kind of a naturalistic treatment of the hair and here in the northern way tradition uh, which is another one of my favorites I have to confess uh, this is about 525 uh, the uh, qualities of this and of course this image is um, Maitreya, the Buddha of the future. And by now, you know, in, in 200 uh, CE, the Mahayana tradition had uh, already evolved. And so there was quite a bit of um, really uh, legends and myths being developed about um, all of the, the uh, different layers of the, of the cosmic um, qualities and uh, just incredibly complex and um, words just uh, escape when you, you try to think of the, uh, the monumental amount of um, writings and thoughts and literature about uh, the Buddhist tradition. And this, the Buddha of the future, is, as someone said, one uh, art historian that I, I like writing about this um, figure is in a holding pattern waiting for the next kalpa. So, uh, and you have the apsaras, the angel type figures um, flying around and then the monks uh, at either side. The style is, uh, again, you can see that the emphasis is on the drapery it's, it's almost like drawing in space with sculpture. Uh, 
very calligraphic. These forms could easily be turned into brush strokes. Could you say a little bit more about the figures around uh, that you described as angel-like? What's the intention of those figures or what's the what's being said? They're called apsaras and they're um, forms, um, spirit forms. It's, it's almost like a level of consciousness that is, um, words are not, <laughs> they're like devas, but the... Um, it's a it's a uh, being state that is um, hovering between uh, kind of between a human form and a transcendent form. So the, the 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 idea would be that this is the the transcendent environment. This is the environment of uh, almost a, the breeding ground for the next Buddha. And this is uh, a very interesting Chinese image that's dated um, 589 to 618. And uh, it is the Buddha's, um, this is the Buddha of the future. And this is uh, the Prabuddha Ratna and Amitabha Buddha uh, having a, a kind of intellectual dialogue about the suttas. And here you see, uh, and this is, this is a very interesting and important kind of observation if you look at this image. Let's see if we can, uh, now when I want it, I can't see the magnifying part. <laughs> right here, this could actually come, this is the Shui dynasty in China, and this could actually come from a court figure. So that the imagery of the Buddha's and the imagery that is made for the Chinese imperial court at this period of time is very closely shared. So, uh, and here again you have the apsaras with the, the idea. You can see how they've kind of gained weight in this, in this uh, dynasty. This is the one that comes right after the Northern Way. And the Northern Way, and if you look at uh, also other uh, textiles and lacquerware, from that tradition, from that period of time, you see a very similar um, aesthetic going through the whole, um, both the imperial court and the Buddhist um, art. (coughs) And here, (coughs) again, the, uh, to make the point of the uh, sensual kind of um, yogic tradition, the simplified muscular form, the, the um, <coughs> emphasis on uh, the breath is what, ha- what travels to and through Southeast Asia. And uh, an example of the, the Borbador image, which is around 750. And again, the Thai image. <coughs> the Thais take pride in the fact that their Buddha images are probably the closest to the narrative 
of the qualities of an enlightened being, which of course makes them less and less portrait-like or less and less what we might call realistic or naturalistic. This is a later Thai uh, Utong image, uh, and this is the correct position of the mudra calling the earth to witness. And this is a Burmese image. Now, the Burmese evolve a very, um, very compelling style uh, of image, starting especially in the 11th century, where um, they merge the image of the Buddha with their ancestral deities called Nats, and it's G-N-A-T as it would be translated, uh, and you will see, uh, I had the good fortune of going with a group from the Thai Museum to Burma in 1970 and uh, going to the monasteries and doing a lot of photographing and um, going to some of the, of the houses of, of some of the people and seeing the ancestral shrines in the backyard. Uh, and they would contain the, the um, image of the gnat and the Buddha the, the, the way to the difference in telling the Buddha is that the Ushnisha is here and this has got to be about a quarter inch of gold leaf on top of the head of the Buddha, the Ushnisha. Uh, and he is also, this becomes a very common mudra uh, in Southeast Asia, the calling of the earth to witness, the uh, very beginnings of uh, the teachings. And sometimes you'll have a uh, decoration uh, on the robe, but and most often though you'll see, you know, the robe will seem transparent in keeping with the uh, prescription that the body uh, of the enlightened one will shine right through any clothing. And here's another. What was what was the uh, mudra on the Borobudur uh, Buddha, the one? Oh, that's the teaching mudra. We're going to have the diagrams and I'll enlarge those. The gnat is what they call their, um, their ancestral uh, spirit, the animistic spirit tradition. So where in this image are we seeing the elements of the gnats as opposed to the Buddha in this image? Well, the first of all, the head is usually um, quite large and it is uh, leaning forward. I probably should have taken a picture of this from the side. It's slightly bent forward and the arms, the uh, hands are somewhat larger. So if you line up a group of Buddha images, um, these will be appropriately Buddha images, but yet if you put them next to the gnat, you'll have to look for the, um, the Ushnisha. Uh, sometimes I don't see an indication of the Urna here, but um, the, also the longer earlobes, that would, would not... Again, you know, it's so interesting because the merging happened many years before and so the evolution of the image that they 
kind of took as their classical image, uh, solidified pretty much. And so that you sometimes wonder after that whether some of the gnats didn't adopt some of the Buddha's characteristics. So, but it's, it's very freely done and it's very freely merged. Uh, there's no sense that um, there's any problem with it. And this is another Buddha image uh, in wood and lacquer uh, where the, uh, this is the story of the snake Mukalinda uh, curling himself around and raising the Buddha up from the flood and uh, protecting him during the time uh, of his enlightenment. Again, the mudra calling the earth to witness. And here, another characteristic that uh, evolves in later Burmese images, and that is that the hair uh, almost looks like a cap. And in a very interesting way, and I don't know if there's a connection, there's also a period in Tibetan art where the, and, and of course there are the Tibetan caps that, um, that come out of that uh, tradition. And this is a Japanese form from the Heian period. And these are to show you the manifestations of the, the influence, the different uh, combination. And um, I might as well... Um, Point up. This is Japanese Heian period. This is called the Dhyana Mudra, which is the gesture of meditation. Uh, and here, this is a, a very interesting. Remember that the path of the influence comes from the Gupta in India. It goes through Afghanistan into China and then into Japan. And in China you see very, very much a connection uh, between the Tang, China, and Nara, Japan. And uh, later on, the, the uh, dynasties that are very um, prosperous and uh, wealthy will share a lot of trade and a lot of exchange. And so there's a very, very similar imagery. Well, what is interesting and what to look for, a really, really um, great uh, kind of fun experience if you're, if you're into art history and looking at forms, is to really look between the Japanese and the Chinese in the forms of those contemporary periods because there is where you can really tease apart the difference in the aesthetic, uh, especially in the painting. You can do that because um, an oversimplification of it is to say that the Chinese take their guide directly from nature. So it's like a direct uh, transmission of the spirit of nature. And the Japanese take their guide from the Chinese art so that it is much more stylized. So that you know if you are copying something, if you do a drawing and you copy, it's going to be much more stylized and much more almost intellectual. Whereas if you just do it spontaneously, it uh, has a very different quality. 
So the Japanese have a remarkable ability which evolves from the 8th century all the way through to the um, 18th and 19th century woodblock prints of being able to communicate this natural quality in a stylized way. Because if you ever look at, um, is it Hiroshige's wave, um, the, the wave woodblock print, and you watch a wave, an actual wave, the way it splashes up, in a very linear graphic stylized way, he has captured the essence, the energy of that, of that quality. And here in this hand uh, piece, the, Jap the Chinese equivalent would be uh, much more, I, I guess you might say, um, heavily present. And the, uh, the qualities, this is almost a, an ethereal rendition of uh, a, the Japanese counterpart, or the Chinese counterpart. And again, the lotus, layers of lotus uh, iconography, the... Um, Mudra is the uh, meditation, the Dhyani Mudra. You notice that the robe now has slipped up of the shoulder yeah. and it's not <laughs> symmetric? That, that's unusual, but it, um, there, it's still over both shoulders, but it's, uh, and that's that, that interesting combination because you also have a stylization of uh, that that uh, yogic quality in a sense there's there's some of it there because you have the linear interpretation and there's an emphasis on the kind of uh, belly kind of protruding so there the all of the qualities that come kind of floating through that the um, Japanese are taking uh, to develop their image are all referred to in very subtle ways because I've, I've always thought this is fascinating the uh, the linear interpretation of the chest and the and the kind of uh, circular um, or curved line to, to indicate that tension of the breath And this is, of course, the very large, I don't know how many story, Kamakura Buddha. And here again, you have that articulation of the uh, folds of the flesh. But you still have the mustache from the Gandharan Indian tradition. So, uh, and you have the uh, symmetrical robe. You have the linear treatment of the robe. Um, the urna, ushnisha is um, very subtle in in this uh, this particular image. The elongated earlobes, um, if you had if you could see the feet, very often the the feet have a um, wheel incised on them, as do the palms of the hands. And this is a Korean image. Uh, and the Korean image is, uh, it's really interesting, a group of uh, Asian art historians once got together and were trying to figure out the language to, uh, 
to kind of define the Korean aesthetic. Um, and earthy, organic, uh, and where you can really see uh, the evolution of the Korean aesthetic is in their ceramics. Because they actually kidnapped a group of ceramicists from Japan and brought them over to Korea to develop their, uh, their uh, ceramic tradition. But what they did with it was just totally different. And uh, it's like you have this, this very, if, if we're looking at this image, he is definitely anchored on the ground. This is not an ethereal image. This is weighty. This is present. And um, he is definitely there. And in the uh, ceramics, you will see that uh, the, uh, the body of the bowl or the cup will be earthy heavy, organic, present, and yet the design, the painting, will be delicate. And it, that, that combination is very quintessentially Korean. And when it works, it works really well. It's very unique. The hand gestures uh, in this one, not in the meditative position, not in the mudra, is there any significance? Is this frequently seen in Korean? Is this somewhat unique to this piece? Or? This, uh, this is a, um, it's a teaching gesture that is modified to, because um, this is a Vajrayana image actually, and so that the the teaching gesture, the typical teaching gesture is the one that you saw in Borbador, where the, the hands are. And when the one finger is, <laughs> one finger is held up, to, uh, that is uh, the teaching of the, of the metaphysical Vajrayana uh, tradition. It's, you'll see it, in fact, I think, I, I'm not sure, but I think that the... Um, uh, Pajma Paramita at Spirit Rock has that um, mudra uh, because that's a yeah the female figure yeah his <laughs> this and this is is very interesting because remember that the uh, prescription of the image is for the broad shoulders of the lion torso. But yet the lower part of this body is, is much more emphasized. And that is, I mean, that's reading the visual language. That is, that is true. There it is. It's really uh, anchored in the earth. It, um, it's not, although it represents a transcendent image, the style of the, of the image itself is anchored in the earth so that it's, it, it kind of makes that connection. Yes, this is gold leaf. Um. Yes. Right. That it is. Um, there, there's again. There's a sharing of the imagery, 
the Vajrayana sometimes do have their inlaid with either mother of pearl or sometimes lapis. Um, but in, in, uh, once you get into the Mahayana, the eyes can be slightly opened. And this again is interesting because, because this is 12th century, so it's already integrated and mixing a lot of traditions and influences. But, uh, the main influence that came through China was the Gandharan, which was for the more portrait-like quality of the face, where you see, um, you know, the face is sometimes looking like Alexander the Great in India when, when, it's, when it first begins. But here, the uh, face, because of the Japanese kind of... Um, at later In later periods, they stylized and um, used the symbolic dictates to create the, the form. So you don't have that much of a, a portrait-like quality. I just had one other question. Now, when did they have uh, those Japanese oh, um, I just wondered when they actually kidnapped those Japanese potters. I think it was probably 13th, 14th century, just during the Song dynasty mm-hmm. of the of the Chinese period, when the Song uh, developed celadon, and it became extremely um, collectible, and so the Koreans wanted to make it. <laughs> and so it they was the Japanese instead of Chinese. Well, they they were doing they were also doing the celadon glaze. The Chinese had the celadon glaze, and they in, mixed it with their uh, the tea ceremony pottery. So, if you look at the Korean pottery, um, they they have um, the shape of the tea bowl from China, like Chan China, where it's it's not round like the tea bowl with the bottom, but it comes more to a triangular base. And yet the quality of the clay and the body of the clay uh, is very much like the Japanese um, Zen type of pottery. Okay, thanks. His robe sits on his body. And, and most of the other images, the robe has that transparent mm-hmm. quality. Is that part of that getting the Buddha image grounded, getting it? That's part of the style. It's, it's kind of common in the Korean image is of this period. And it is also uh, still almost a very direct stylistic link with that Gandharan image where the robes are, I mean, they're definitely robes on the body and there's very little um, translucence. So again, it's just a absolute alphabet soup of uh, mixing of styles and traditions and uh, images. And this is a Tibetan image. Um, So you see the, uh, and it's, it's quite evolved. You see the robe is just indicated by a line uh, across the torso. And um, 
I can't really see if there's a wheel, but usually it is prescribed that there would be the wheel of the law on the hands, the palms of the hands and the feet. And uh, the Urna, the Ushnisha, here you have now uh, a developed uh, kind of crowning element that gets into various complex symbolism all the way from the flame and the lotus and uh, it, it is shared also with architecture uh, in, in many cases. The Tibetan um, aesthetic and the um, traditions that have evolved are the only thing to say is super complex. Uh, um, and also, they can't necessarily always be the same. I mean, in some books you'll read something about a symbolism and then in another it'll be totally different. So, uh, I'm looking at the, the color of the hair. <coughs> Yeah, and in fact, it it also names this particular Buddha. Uh, there's a shared identity between the Shakyamuni and uh, the Buddha of the future. Uh, there's also if sometimes you'll see a Buddha like this, and there'll be a lotus at the shoulder, and that will be a, another figure in the pantheon of the ten thousand Buddhas from the Tibetan. Tradition. And, and what is the left hand doing? Is that, is that just... Let's see if it... That's the... Um, that would be the meditation, half of the meditation mudra, the other half being the calling of the, of the earth to witness. So that would be the dhyana and the... Um, I don't know what the uh, Pali term for that one is and did you have a question yeah I just had a question about I, I noticed like in the Korean and, and the Japanese maybe a little bit in the Chinese the, the face tends to be blockier or the cheeks seem to be wider um, where does that come from or is that a Greco influence or where does that come from by, by this time no, that's a very good observation. Uh, it comes from the court aesthetic. If you look at the imperial court art of China and then you look at the Buddha image, you could see, like for instance, the Northern Way, the slender, the kind of calligraphic in space. You see on the lacquer and on the uh, textiles, you see the um, uh, drawings of the imperial court. And does anybody, um, has anybody seen that? Uh, great uh, lacquer where you have a horse and carriage with um, wheels and there's a, a driver with a whip and it's kind of going through the sky. Well, that that's a northern way image and that's very similar to the aesthetic of the Buddha images. And where you see the blocky face, if you look at Tang Dynasty, and we're going to see in a, in a minute, you'll see a Tang Dynasty uh, Kuan Yin, 
uh, you see that that was the, you know, it was, it, it really is interesting. We think that, you know, we're an anomaly today with all the fashions and all the, the ideas of body types and all of that. But, uh, you know, the imperial courts had their ideas of, in the Northern Way, it was a, a slender, very uh, draped and, and calligraphic. In the Tang Dynasty, it was very present, very portly, and full of flowing robes. And the, the, there's sometimes double and triple chins on some of the, some of the figures. So that's, that's where that aesthetic for the head of the Buddha comes from. And Tang is, is 7th, 8th century. Now this is Vietnamese. And the, uh, the reclining Buddha is a, a form that is not tremendously uh, common and popular, but uh, this particular Vietnamese form does uh, carry the aesthetic, and you have the kind of linear treatment of the hair uh, and the, the uh, organic kind of growing out of the uh, earth. And what is interesting in this image and I think in Vietnamese art in general most of Southeast Asia uh, shares a connection in aesthetic to India whereas the Vietnamese are much closer in aesthetic to China if you look at their architecture if you look at their even domestic architecture it's it's much closer my understanding is that, that Vietnamese Buddhism is more Zen too than than, yeah. than the other Southeast Asian. Yes, it is. So it ref, it reflects the uh, the the actual spiritual tradition. Yet it's interesting that it's it comes from Chan in China first because Chan went to Japan and became it is called Zen in Japan. But the Chan Buddhist tradition of what we know as Zen uh, is what the, the Vietnamese take because they don't take the aesthetic of Zen from Japan. They, they take, um, they, their imagery is, that, this is why, I mean, you see this is very unusual, very strange. It's a composite from a lot of, because of the fact that their practice is what we know as Zen and it's pretty much without images and it's uh, based in, in uh, meditation in nature when they use images they will borrow from, uh, from the Chinese earlier traditions the, um, not the Chan version because they didn't have images either but they'll, they'll borrow from different traditions in China and Korea even um, so it's it's a very kind of anomalous uh, style, and it isn't used as much for practice. The outside images as these, for instance, if this were in Thailand, there would be lots of people coming and doing walking meditation and being. But here, it's it's just kind of a reminder. Uh, it's a it's a monument in the in the countryside. Put the mic. 
Can you say something about the monumental scale? Uh, oh, the scale? Well, that um, comes in almost, uh, um, there's a, a competition that goes on. It's kind of similar in the, like in the Middle Ages with the cathedrals uh, to, you know, who can do the, the largest image. Uh, so it's, there's not a lot known about it, but there are um, these monumental tie, the ties uh, at a similar time had uh, monumental images in Sukhothai that were destroyed um, during a little altercation with the Burmese. In fact, you'll see there's a, if you go to Sukhothai, it's a really fascinating site. Um, there's a head that is larger than this that is kind of laying in a field and it was part of a reclining Buddha. Uh, that's all that's left of it right now is the head, however. But that was, it was a, um, you know, just like every other tradition, the competition of who can build the biggest and the fastest and the greatest. And this is a complex with a reclining Buddha in Burma. And uh, it's at the um, Shwedagon uh, Pagoda. And this was a particular, this was when... Uh, I had the good fortune to go with the Thai Museum Group and we did a lot of photography uh, for the National Museum to establish a slide uh, photo study library. And uh, this reminded me of, uh, is it Musang's teacher who said uh, he was uh, telling his students that when you eat, only eat. And uh, they came and found him eating and reading the newspaper and they said, hey, you said when you eat, only eat. And he said, well, when you're eating and reading, eat and read. <laughs> but this would be, uh, there's a similar kind of lineup in the Thai uh, temple complexes where there will be all kinds of styles of uh, Buddha images and monk images uh, that will uh, sometimes be donated by the um, the householders uh, for merit and uh, they generally in this case you can see that there's a similarity of style that that they follow uh, each period in uh, Burmese art uh, has a slightly different style and this is already um, into the 18th century so it's evolved from the early image that I showed you which is the traditional what they call classical Burmese image that uh, is at the very beginning of the merging with their ancestral spirit tradition. And this is the charts of the mudras. Let's get some magnification here. Can you see the writing? Is that clear enough or does it need to be focused? This is the, okay, the first one is called the Dhamma Chakra Mudra, and it is the um, gesture of teaching, and that in in uh, very close uh, format uh, will resemble what you saw in the Indonesian image. Oops. <laughs> 
Oh, did we get to the next page already? Okay, we'll do this first. This is the gesture of meditation. Um, it's called a Dhyana Mudra. Both hands resting on the lap, palms upward. And this is the Abhaya Mudra. The gesture of fear not. The right hand slightly elevated, palm turned outward, calling the, ge- uh, the gesture of renunciation also. And this is um, often used in Tibetan, uh, the Tibetan uh, tradition. It's the uh, Vitarka Mudra. It's the gesture of debate. Now, I think we missed one on the... Okay, this is the gesture of warding off evil. That is not really common. Uh, you, you see this more on standing images than you do on seated images. And then the Namaskara Mudra, the gesture of prayer. Buddha Shramana Mudra gesture of beyond misery also called the ascetic's gesture of renunciation the gesture of teaching and the gesture of renunciation I just had a question was the teaching one was kind of with the palm toward the body and the renunciation with the palm away from the body let's look back okay gotta go back one I think okay the Dhammachakra Mudra is the gesture of teaching so the palm the um, <laughs> the left palm. <laughs> the hand that has the fingers together, the palm is toward the Buddha. Yeah. Who's doing the teaching, whereas the renunciation, the palm is away. Yeah, exactly. Okay, and then um, the second question is the prayer gesture. What in this case does prayer mean? Now that's another example, a very good example of our conditioning in our language and our description because uh, whoever wrote the text on this is obviously coming from a Western tradition. That gesture in uh, certainly in Thailand that I remember the Thais talking about it would be a, a, a gesture of greeting, of uh, welcoming and of, uh, of bowing 
you know, to the the kind of namaste type of uh, the God in me greets the God in you kind of that that type of gesture rather than prayer. Let's see. Uh, this this one. One more back. I think the um, compassion. Maybe this one. The the uh, bestowing of compassion. The right hand pendant with the palm turned outwards. It's called the Varada Mudra. I think we did all of them. And if you notice of the traditional ones, the calling of the earth to witness is not here. <laughs> that was kind of uh, evolved in, uh, in, the, um, in the Theravadan tradition, which is interesting. Oh, yeah, but it was, it's used in the Theravadan tradition more than in the other ones. I mean, that all of the mudras, all of the Buddha images evolved in the Mahayana tradition, but when the Theravadans decided which ones to use, they are the most common using of the calling of the earth to witness. And here again, the... um, kind of proportions and uh, diagrams for uh, the creators of the Buddha image. And this is an example of um, another way in which the culture integrates and interacts with a tradition as it comes in and changes. So here you have uh, the Avalokiteshvara in India is uh, the bodhisattva of compassion. Well, when Avalokiteshvara enters China, there's a kind of gender reassignment and Avalokiteshvara male becomes a female. And that is because in the Chinese tradition, compassion is a female characteristic. So there's uh, an evolution uh, of the figure that comes from India and this is Sung China uh, Avalokiteshvara or Kuan Yin. So uh, if anybody's familiar with the Tao, especially uh, Stephen Mitchell's translation of the Tao Te Ching, uh, he assigns he or she pronoun in the translation to the nature of the text. And so that is very similar to the Chinese philosophical outlook, and that is they uh, consider gender to be um, not the whole picture. In other words, everyone has all of the qualities and possibilities and capabilities, and it's just the spectrum. And so they assign certain qualities to female nature they don't call it gender they call it the female nature indicating everyone has it all all the potential and all the possibilities so they assign the female quality to compassion and so therefore 
Avalokiteshvara becomes Kuan Yin, who is female. And this is a... Um, however, in many of the uh, images that Avalokiteshvara or Kuan Yin is uh, androgynous. And there is a very rich and long tradition of androgyny in art in both East and West. Is anybody familiar with the writings of Camille Paglia? Uh, she has a book called Sexual Persona. And um, she has a chapter on androgyny. And she highlights Christ, the Buddha, Lord Byron, and Elvis as examples of the um, androgyny in art and how you get to a, a certain level with, for instance, Lord Byron and Elvis, um, where the perception of the being is beyond, uh, beyond sexuality. They're, they can be sensual, but not sexual. And if you look at all of the images of Christ and the Buddha, it's a very similar kind of thing. So, and they, they can be, and if you're familiar with Western art, especially Caravaggio, many of the um, images of Christ are very androgynous. And then we have the very complex uh, energetic uh, combination of uh, male and female nature subduing uh, greed, hatred, and delusion. This is specifically, uh, these are images of uh, hatred and delusion. Uh, the greed is kind of in there somewhere, but uh, these are specifically assigned to, to these two beings. So that the, the energy, the quality of the... Um, coming together of the male and female nature um, can be responsible for subduing uh, ignorance. I think it's ignorance and, and uh, delusion. What's the nature or the meaning of all of the arms? The energetic... Um, each one, you know, and you'll also see sometimes with various symbols and various, this is a, a total composite of uh, borrowing from Hindu tradition and mystical spirit tradition from uh, India, Tibet, Nepal, China. By this time, you know, there's this fusion of uh, symbols that, that kind of come along. And the multi-armed are, are just that quality it's a uh, an attempt to project to communicate visually the power and the essence of the the merging of these two energies there's also if you look at the faces there's four faces uh, and the the uh, crowning element very loosely resembles that um, evolution of the stupa so there's there's multi-layered symbolism uh, in a lot many many of the Tibetan images, and then back to the Theravadan, uh, you have the uh, the Buddha uh, the standing holding the monk's bowl 
this would be because there is Anushnisha present this would be uh, right after his enlightenment there are also monks uh, that are uh, sculpted that do not have the Anushnisha which would be simply a monk so reading the symbolism and reading the the visual language uh, can tell you uh, where you are no 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 and this is a standing Buddha of the Khmer culture, the Cambodian. Oh, please stop. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, this is the Khmer image uh, of the crown Buddha. Now, that seems to be an oxymoron in uh, the Theravadan tradition. But in the Cambodian Khmer uh kingdom uh, they were associated with the Hindu uh, tradition for a long time and mixed the Hindu and Buddhist tradition they were they kind of dominated the Thai uh, areas until about the end of the 11th century so in the beginnings uh, of the Thai uh, development of the Thai Buddha image you'll see uh, a more similar uh, looking image to the Khmer where the face is much more square the nose uh, very often is flattened and um, again this is the tradition that comes from their own dynasty aesthetic as well as uh, some of the Hindu uh, images that that they um, that you can find uh, within the the ruins of some of the sites here you do have the, the uh, wheel on the hands and uh, the earrings are, are still on the figure but this is considered to be Shakyamuni Buddha but uh, crowned and with a robe that is adorned so it's a, it's a very interesting mix I notice there's a crown also in the Tibetan images so was there some crossover in that or where did the crown in the Tibetan images come from? Um, there, you know, the Tibetan was preceded by the Bon uh, culture and the, the merging of the, the kind of uh, aesthetic of the ruler tradition and of, the, of, of uh, someone who is... Um, to be respected and and to be followed um, would be given the crown. I don't think that there's a, a connection to the the Khmer. Now, there might be, however, a more direct connection to the Hindu. Uh, the whole idea of the God King too comes from India, uh, from the Persian tradition. So it's just very integrated. I mean that. The Persian god king is also um, given the um, credit or responsibility for having Christ turned into a king from a good shepherd. So the influence kind of travels uh, in, in many directions. But I always thought it was very um, strange uh, when we first went to Thailand and um, we were first introduced to Buddhism to see a, a crowned Buddha. 
And here we have the Sukhothai walking Buddha. And the prescription for the all the proportions is followed directly from the text. So um, let's see if we can get to the next one. This is give you a sequence. This is um, in the uh, Bangkok Museum. And I can say this because I worked with Prince Supat, uh, who was an archaeologist and he was a nephew of the king. And he was at the museum and we were looking at Sukhothai images and he said, well, you can describe him as the blown up rubber look. <laughs> because uh, the surfaces are smooth. There's... Uh, Again, this is a stylized example of the tension of the yogic breath. It's not the Indian sensual example of the tension of the breath, but it's very much following the written uh, prescription of how uh, the great being uh, would look. And you see also this flame uh, above the Ushnisha now, which becomes a a very traditional uh, quality of Sukhothai art. And this is interesting too. It's again that stylization. If you look at the feet, and they, for some reason, I'm not exactly sure why, but a great being also has protruding heels. Uh, But when you look at the walking Buddha and you look at him for a while, and if you do walking meditation, it's really interesting. I had the experience once of doing walking meditation after about half an hour and all of a sudden realizing that that quality of the lifting of the heel and the foot on the ground, it was like it was just there. And so I realized that this image, although stylized, really does have that ability to communicate that natural quality of walking. It may be only me. (laughs) And uh, then we have, when we've been talking about mixing and merging of styles uh, and the uh, combination of practices and the uh, fitting into the culture, talking about having the Chinese uh, images very similar uh, to the imperial court images and aesthetic. Here you have American culture. Uh, Buddha kind of loosely associated uh, with a Buddha image, uh, image of serenity. Over 300 gift ideas. So, <laughs> but this image is um, obviously taken from the style of the Buddha image. It is simplified, certainly not, and it's somewhat androgynous, if not going towards the female side. And it uh, obviously, for those who know Henry Moore, it's uh, taken a little bit from uh, Western influence. And given the fact that Henry Moore was influenced by Asian forms, uh, it's, it's come around uh, full circle. And then you have the, uh, the image we started with, in the, uh, which is a composite. Uh, this is an Australian artist, uh, Stengel. And uh, 
you have here uh, kind of a composite of the Tibetan and Thai face. Uh, this kind of widow's peak here is usually not, uh, doesn't appear in Tibetan art very much, but it does in Thai. And he is holding all of the repair, household repair tools. Um, and this afternoon we're going to look at some interesting images of 20th century art at, uh, this one being a late one but starting with uh, the 1940s through uh, the end of the century uh, and so we'll see uh, in the 20th century it's interesting because when you say Buddhist art as Buddhist practice Early on from the architecture through all of the Buddha images, the uh, images were used to remind the practitioner of the teachings of the Buddha. So it's almost like there's a uh, here-there kind of relationship to the image. What you'll see in 20th century art is the art is more about the Dharma directly, more about putting the practitioner in a place or space with the potential for enlightenment. So, um, and it is picked up, it's... uh, You'll find that the early influence is very much from the Zen tradition. And it is uh, communicated through the process of meditation and the humor that comes with the koan. And of course, this is part of the, part of the humor. This is this is my question consideration. Now, I could see that the the early images were were objects to further the practice or to bring you back, to bring you to that to the practice. But this just seems like a humorous. It seems like the making of art, not rather than the making of a religious. Uh, uh, coming from the process of making art rather than coming from the process of devotion to well that's yeah. what that's a good question and that's what we're going to be really um, talking about that whole issue in the afternoon uh, with the contemporary art because what the uh, the elemental issue is is the intention of the artist and when the artist, well, one of, I'll give away a little bit of what we'll do this afternoon. When the artists, a lot of the artists um, worked with D.T. Suzuki, and uh, he gave a course at Columbia University in New York on, uh, essay, on Zen Buddhism. And uh, John Cage and a group of artists went, and they were, they were all, they all kind of shared the ideas, and then they began reading, and some began to practice. And one of the statements that Suzuki made that Robert Motherwell um, said, I had the good fortune to interview him just before he died. And he said one of the statements he made that was just a 
really important seed to the whole art um, at that time was he said one thing is no more important than any other as a means to enlightenment and they they made that almost as a mantra and the other aspect of Zen was the humor and so the humor was considered to be something that displaces you from the idea that there should be any worship or devotion because the other statement that they carried was if you see the Buddha on the road kill him and so this is the same kind of in fact uh, I don't know if anybody has ever sat with uh, Anam Tubton Rinpoche um, he is a remarkable Tibetan teacher and uh, he says in his uh, he's about 40 years old and uh, he came from Tibet 17 years ago I think um, and his students he says you know some people just need things to worship and they need things to to and he said I don't allow any prostrations I don't allow any bowing I don't allow any of the mandalas or or images to be to be used in the in the way of worship he said but some people just need something so he said I decided to give them something if you need a mandala you use a Santa Claus mandala and your mantra is ho 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 and you say it a million times so this is in that same spirit trying to get away from anything that is could be contextualized as something other than self and humor is one way that American artists decided after taking as as one of uh, the artist said to me in an uh, interview when you begin the practice and you take these this consciousness into yourself it changes the way you tie your shoes so it's likely to change your art so it, it really is the intention behind it and the intention behind this image is to displace any kind of separation and or that reverence that the Tibetan uh, teacher refers to also that sometimes can be on the, the Buddha on the road so uh, that that's why it's very interesting that the evolution of Buddhist art has come from the early giving space simply a mound to circumnambulate to remember the teachings of the Buddha and then you have this panoply that develops over time that in a way is detrimental to the true practice and that is the the idea of worship or the idea of of this almost false reverence to something outside the self to an image so that's that's been the um, well you'll see this afternoon that a lot of uh, surprises <laughs> where does the image of the I call it the kitsch Buddha you know the ones that you see that have big fat bellies and the clocks in them and you know that you can pick up I mean is that strictly like a tourist thing or how did I mean well that's interesting because 
again, the the um, placement of that concept within uh, the realm of of the true teachings of the Buddha, Hote is that is called that is that particular Buddha image he's the Bodhisattva of happiness and he is one of the few images that is painted by the Japanese and uh, that it's very interesting because early in the century when images came over they were used out of context you know for decorative because the first first influence of Asian art and Asian thought was really kind of exotic and romantic. It was in within the American and European romantic tradition that some of this came in. So it was used for decoration, clocks and lamps and stuff. But I went with a friend of mine to Chinatown who was doing a, a thing uh, on, um, he's, he teaches at the University of uh, Sydney and he was doing a project on souvenirs. So we went to Chinatown to collect some. He was doing snow domes at that time. He was looking for them. So we saw these images, these little magnets to put on cars with the Buddha with the latte, the Buddha with sunglasses and the newspaper. And it was the Hote type of Buddha. And But, you know, it's it's I think it's very healthy in the sense that, you know, you can do that because... It's not like there is, you know, some kind of superstition or uh, practice that uh, that you do or you don't do. Um, it's just where you are and the, the level and quality of your experience. And, you know, when you come into association with the art, it is the artist's intention and hope that you will be stirred to deeper awareness. And if it's by humor, and the Zen tradition has shown time and time again that that, that can happen. You know. It's rub. It's a uh, rubber. It's a. <laughs> and it has in the bottom. It has all the traditional, the elephants, and all the <laughs> all the monks, and all the traditional kind of echoes of of the past. Rudolf Stingel, 1994, urethane cast rubber. <laughs> okay, so I think this is... So as our midterm exam, can you uh, analyze our Buddha on the, on the altar behind you? Oh. Oh my. <laughs> it's Thai. I think I know that much. Okay. Well, the overall body type. Uh, oh, too loud. Okay, the overall body type uh, is reminiscent of the Sukhothai, but you know, a kind of 
distant reminiscence because the shoulders are not the the lion type shoulders. So it's it's taking off from the Sukhothai image, but the um, the facial features uh, the nose is more sculpted and it's more naturalistic. That's what I find is a tendency on a lot of uh, people who are making contemporary images of the Buddha is they tend to make the face a more in a more portrait kind of quality. Um, the uh, nose of the Buddha is supposed to look like an eagle because that, that was another one of those symbolic um, references in the major marks of an enlightened being. And um, the downcast eyes are... Uh, authentic. The, if you look at the uh, snail curls, they're, they're rectangles. <laughs> so they've been quite stylized. Uh, however, the um, flame, it's kind of a merging of uh, symbolism of the flame and the lotus. Uh, this, is, this could be found in Sukhothai. So it's, it's a, what they call in art history a conflation. Uh, mixture of uh, in, independent kind of creative uh, expression with the traditional image. But it, its basic motivation comes from the, the Sukhothai image, as you can probably tell. But it's interesting because. Uh, you don't see that in traditional images. So they're giving permission to be more comfortable. <laughs> the images on the bottom at Spirit Rock in the uh, hall below, the teaching hall, they have images like that on the base that the teachers sit on. Is there any significance to that? Is that, again, a stupa image or... Oh, those are that's the stylized lotus. That's a, oh the stylized most of the lotus. most of the bases of the later images are the the lotus base, and you know it would be referring to that um, traditional tale of the the Buddha talking about the roots of the lotus growing in the muck, but the lotus flower comes above and you know blooms in purity. So it's a very Interesting combination. It's not rubber. It's not rubber. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it does follow the Sukhothai um, pattern of the robe, where the um, one side of the robe comes down and is supposed to just touch the navel. But the facial features are definitely a, an original. <laughs> I think this is the last one. Let me just check. Yeah. So, are there any other questions? When you talked about Kuan Yin in the Chinese tradition. Did she also come into the Japanese? Is oh, she yes. also depicted in Japan? Okay. That's oh, it. yes. Okay. I think Avalokiteshvara Kuan Yin is in every 
every tradition. Although, come to think of it, I didn't see any in Thailand. <laughs> no, it's not. It's a Mahayana tradition. Um, given all the, I don't know whether you'll get to. Um, I wonder if this afternoon you'll talk a little bit about all the different types of figures in Buddhist art. You've, you've talked about different types of Buddha images in the Alokiteshvara, but there, particularly in Japanese art, there are all these, um, you know, different kinds of figures, and I, I'm curious about those. Well, this afternoon we're going to be talking about 20th century. Oh, okay. uh, so but you could uh, suggest a good resource. Oh yeah, I have uh, lots of <laughs> lots of bibliography on that. Yeah, it's just a pantheon in the Mahayana tradition, in the Japanese and Chinese and uh, Tibetan, especially. Are they generally uh, different aspects of practice or of, of you know the process? Yeah, actually, they're uh, not. They're not different beings or I mean not different individuals no that's one thing that is very much to be underlined and uh, I sometimes I forget to um, underline it and that is that for most of the um, Buddhist tradition um, there was an emphasis that the image was not a person but a personification of enlightenment. And in the Theravadan tradition, that was really emphasized. And of course, that's why the Thais are very proud of the fact that the Thai uh, image could not be a real person. I mean, the arms hang down to the ankles and, you know, the, the, the flowing, blown up rubber look kind of thing. Uh, but because those were the prescription of an enlightened being and that's why I think I, I would I would project on the uh, intention of the Buddha saying, "Do not make any images of me, so that you know they could be worshipped or think of anybody as a god." But the images were underlined again and again as to be a personification of a an idea of a a, a quality. That's why the um, Japanese Amida Buddhism and the, ter- uh, the um, Tibetan develop all kinds of beings, of figures that represent compassion and uh, joy and also uh, all of the, um, the beings that represent the um, different levels of uh, problems such as hell and <laughs> things like that, but the the figures themselves are not meant to be uh, beings, the you know human beings. They're meant to be personifications of qualities. Um, again, though, is do we know was there a particular event or what really allowed people to start making images of the Buddha? I know even though he said not to, there, was there a turning point, an event that created that? Well, the, that um, once Buddhism became um, 
really flourished and became uh, associated with the ruling classes and the courts. And you had the uh, impact of the uh, Greco-Roman tradition where they brought a lot of images with them and had images made. And then you also had the Jain tradition in uh, India itself that started to make images. So it was this competitive quality. And of course, oh, there's a beautiful uh, dialogue in the Mahayana uh, sutras, that, sutras that talks about the um, almost the uh, permission to make images. It's this back and forth between uh, well, uh, there's nothing anyway, and <laughs> and uh, since uh, there there never was a Buddha and there never was enlightenment, and it's it's a very Zen uh, kind of argument, but it's it's just beautiful and just hysterical. It's it's kind of like if you're familiar with Western art the uh, dialogue that went back and forth between Botticelli and the Medici about permission to paint the first nude in 800 years in the Renaissance where uh, one of the, um, I forgot who it is, the the, uh, priest says to Botticelli, just think of her as the Virgin Mary and you'll, you'll, paint her with pure purity and light <laughs> and no guilt. So uh, it, it's a kind of similar to that in that fact, well, it's okay to make images because, you know, there never really was a Buddha and there's no such thing as enlightenment and there's no, everything is empty anyway and so we can just use it as a reminder. But it is, uh, I think it's probably a little after about 200 A.D., Well, are we? Oh, did you have a question? Yeah. Um, you haven't really talked much. You kind of alluded to um, when you were talking to about stupas, about uh, mandalas, and um, I don't know that there's much in the way in the tra- Theravadan tradition of mandalas. But I know, for example, the Tibetan uh, tradition has a lot of mandalas. There, there isn't um, in the Theravadan tradition. And the mandala is uh, essentially fully and extremely developed by the Tibetans. And we're going to see one this afternoon because it was also very influential on contemporary artists. Uh, the, uh, you know that Jung got involved with mandalas and actually painted some himself. And he was an important carrier of these ideas and a kind of uh, spur to a lot of the artists to get in, involved and investigate them more. Um, they are a cosmic diagram. And the original stupas uh, were the evolved stupas uh, that we saw like in Nepal. That was considered to be a similar laying out of the different levels of, also the levels of experience. So there's many layers in the um, the kind of generation of these 
concepts and these that lead to the architecture and that lead to the art um, that overlay each other and merge. But we will. We I do have a mandala this afternoon to show um, how it is plays an important part in influencing 20th century art. Well, the Theravadan tradition um, is kind of um, the idea of worship and the idea of looking for something outside is not very receptive to that. So I guess we have a break for lunch.